Is inflation taking a bite out of your grocery budget? Andrews Federal Credit Union is here to help. Introducing our Inflation Buster Share Certificate with 5% APY for seven months, now through December 2nd. Bring your money to Andrews Federal Credit Union today. The Inflation Buster account must be open with new money. Andrews Federal Credit Union membership is not just for the military. We also serve the community. Visit andrewsfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Membership eligibility required. APY equals annual percentage yield. Must have $1,000 minimum balance to earn advertised APY. Jazzcast Pros. When we think about governments, institutions, and you think about historical trauma, institutional racism, structural racism, generational trauma, the benefit that the country and American businesses, international businesses, have benefited from just the inception of, of how this republic was, you know, you steal it, and then you take others to work it. Yeah, you're gonna be pretty successful, I think. I mean, that's a pretty good start. There's no bootstraps. And this is a reality. There's gotta be a level of humility that New York State comes to the table with the Seneca Nation. It's so what if the Seneca Nation has made a lot of money off of gaming and whatever, no matter what you make out of that, it'll never be able to, to be a fair and equitable exchange for what was done to Native people. The genocide that was a result of this experiment, American experiment, it's related to thinking can impinge upon a person's existence, their land, their religion, their hairstyle, that you, in your position of authority, have the right to go and just just take. And quite frankly, I would argue that the, the Seneca Nation doesn't owe New York State anything. Hello, good morning, good day, good afternoon, whatever time of the day you may be tuning in and listening to us. We thank you all of our listeners for tuning in for your weekly dose of hope with the Igniting Hope Radio podcast brought to you by the Buffalo Center for Health Equity. It's your host, well, co-host, Kimberly Slugarambe. As always, I'm here with Pastor G and we always have an exciting new guest with us weekly. This week, she is someone who is dear to the Buffalo Center for Health Equity. She is an amazing member of the African-American Health Equity Task Force. And in her day-to-day role, she is the healthcare advocate organizer for HEP, the Healthcare Education Project. And she's a member of the 1199 SEIU. And of course, she's a proud member of the Seneca Nation, none other than Samantha Nephew. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on today. Sam, it's always so good to have a conversation with you. And as you know, um, committed and concerned about the conditions of of African-Americans as it relates to their health outcomes. And um, in my Bible study the other day, we were talking about the country and how sometimes we, in America, we have this revised view of history and and how things came to be. And in a lot of ways, I described, you know, the place that reside as a crime scene, a place where, uh, you know, a tremendous crime was committed. The trespassing and stealing and occupying of land that by people who, that's not their land, they just took it. And then the enslavement, the stealing, um, the kidnapping of, of people from another nation to come and to to work the soil. And somehow we've romanticized that. And I, and I think that we need to really begin to start telling the truth about things, not just to, to make people feel bad. It's not, even, it's not even about feeling bad, 
But if you don't operate with truth from your foundation, then everything that you do off of that will ever lead you to a place of justice and righteousness. And so we've pretty much, you know, we've documented uh, what's going on in the African-American community, especially as it relates to COVID, talking about mental health. So what's, what are you seeing? What are you hearing that's happening uh, in the indigenous community? And, I, and I, that's the term I use because indigenous means, you know, native to the spaces that it was. Even the term, I, you know, even, I struggle even with the term Native America because it wasn't America, right? I mean, it's, it's so, so at every kind of definition, you know, I, I know the Cleveland Indians just changed their, their, their name of their baseball team. Uh, this year. And so we've just used all these pejorative names to to describe the people that this was there. This is where, you know, God had planted them on this earth. And so can you tell me a little bit about what's, you know, what's happening in those communities? So let's just chop it up. <laughs> I get that all the time. Is What do you like to be called? Well, first of all, I'm Samantha. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then second, you know, we, we always talk about Native American, African American, Hispanic American. What does it all mean? The hyphenations. And I think that that is definitely derived from just uh, the othering of what is American, right? You, you know that. And then the way I always look at it is, you know, Native American is this really lazy way of lumping all of these different people together, right? Like, that's what they would call me here in Buffalo, but that's what they would also call uh, Hopi and the Arizona area and, and so on and so forth. And yet there's tremendously different values and ceremonies and just outlooks and all of that, the way you would look at life. And so it, it's definitely interesting because nobody would ever, I've never heard anybody call me like a Seneca American. What is that? And I just think that that is, like I said, a very lazy way, but it's also uh, an easy out, right? When you forget to include a Native American or a Seneca, like what does that mean? And it's a further form of erasure. I think that there is definitely a lot that goes into that because like you said, indigenous doesn't necessarily just mean people of this land. We talk about it in this really broad term, but uh, somebody who is born and raised in Ghana is indigenous to Africa. It's where they are. So it's definitely hard to do that, but I don't think that we were supposed to be, you know, all lumped in like that. There, I've definitely talked to some people who wish we would all just be American, but you can't separate, you know, the fact that my entire, you know, lineage comes from, comes from here. So definitely a lot of conversations on how do we go about identifying ourselves. All of that to say is you were right in all the terms. <laughs> uh, the Seneca Nation right on our, you know, the, our seal, all of the mail that I get, all of it, everything it says Seneca Nation of Indians. So there's no one right way. Um, I think we all just have our preferences on what we, you know, want to be called. And then just moving into your question, what am I seeing? Uh, I mean, it mirrors a lot of what we see with the African-American Health Equity Task Force. One of the reasons why I'm so involved in both arenas, obviously for the um, Health Equity Task, the African-American Health Equity Task Force, I live in Buffalo. We don't have a huge, especially compared to, we don't have a huge population in the urban areas. Not a lot of places in the country do. A, a large portion of Native people tend to live in reservations, which tend to be more rural and just further away from urban cores, where the opposite is true. African-Americans tend to live in urban cores and in areas like that. So I stay involved on this area because, again, I live in the city of Buffalo. I've grown up in the city of Buffalo. I went to Buffalo Public Schools. So 
the people that I consider close to me tend to identify as African-American, Hispanic-American, et cetera, et cetera. And those people, you know, they're not statistics. They're my friends. They're my colleagues. They're my loved ones. And I care when a friend, uh, a friend who is black is pregnant and we know what the, you know, black maternal health rate is. We care about when somebody gets diabetes. We, I care about when somebody has this, that, or the other happen to them. And so it's very important to me just on a very human level, right? We haven't talked, we haven't said the word human once in any of this, and we rarely do. Um, but on a very human level, I just care about the people around me. And so that's why I tend to stay very involved in the communities that, you know, we live in. And then, of course, I stay involved within the, the, native, the native community as much as I can. Large portions of it being situated between the Cattaraugus Indian Reservation, which is roughly around Irving, New York, and then, of course, the Allegheny Indian Reservation, which is more south, about Salamanca, closer to the Pennsylvania borderline. And those are two of the Seneca reservations, and I have family that live on both. So a lot of cousins and my, my, gran my grandmother, who recently passed, uh, lived in the, in the uh, Allegheny Indian Reservation. So obviously very close to both types of communities. Mm -hmm. So, so... Um, when we we're talking about health disparities is what mm -hmm. we always talk about the social determinants of health talk a little bit about the intersection you know between our communities around those issues i think that a lot of people would be not surprised to say one of the big things is poverty mm -hmm. it's access honestly i like i said growing up especially I did not see a whole lot of wealth within my families within our neighbors uh down that way there's just not a whole lot of access. And even when the Seneca Nation does have a healthcare system, you know, transportation can still be an issue. Uh, the nation does lots of ways to try to mitigate it, but it can still be an issue. And then like you asked me about mental health, that, can, that tends to be a barrier for a lot of people. I won't name names, but within my own family, having conversations over the weekend at my grandmother's funeral, I, I heard names and situations where things aren't going well because they don't think to go to the doctor. It's not it's not top of mind. And I truly believe it's fully rooted in poverty and of course generational trauma, uh, when we talk about that, which is something we could out we could very much go into, which I believe has a huge, huge implication for how uh, a lot of native people live today. So when you talk about generational trauma, you know, from your community would kinda of amplify on that and, and kinda of explain to those who are listening how that that impacts the mental state of, of being for someone right now? So I would say one of the best examples of generational trauma that's come up and has been uh, highlighted much more uh, in, in national news, international really, because Canada is talking about it too, but is the idea of residential schools. Yes. And residential schools, yeah. So there were, as far as I remember, two within our region the Thomas Indian School, and there was another one, no, in Steenberg, close by Steenberg in the Allegheny region. And I'll just, again, go from personal point of view. My great-grandmother was somebody who was in one of those schools. And in these schools, for our listeners, um, this wasn't, you know, the school down the block, you right. go there, seven to three kind of thing. These schools were designed to kill the Indian, save the man. That was actual rhetoric from the federal government at the time that said, we don't want the Indians, but they're people. So let's, you know, 
let's nix all of the culture. Let's nix they people would get beat if they spoke their language. Hair was cut. Hair is very important uh, to a lot of native cultures across the country. Braids and whatnot is just very important to the way we see ourselves and the way we connect to the earth and, and with the creator. So all of those things were stripped away and people were told that they were evil or they were the devil. Uh, they had native names that they weren't allowed to use anymore. They were given, you know, good Christian names. Yeah, yeah, and speak a little bit about the role of the Christian church in this diabolical plot. Well, yeah, I mean, it was uh, definitely sanctioned by the federal government, but they it was done hand in hand with the church. Right. Uh, it was nuns in in these places that were teaching, that were hitting, that were doling out, um, you know, negative consequences for children who deigned to do the only thing they knew. Oh, and they were stripped away from their families, mind you. I talk about the two schools that were here in this region, but people came from all over uh, to these schools. And that was the case across the country. Uh, you were separated from your family and from your communities um, so that you were ingrained, indoctrinated into this one thing. And it was Anglo culture, English language, all of that. And so that's very important. I mean, we should go on with the story, but it's very important for us to recognize and understand that the practice of Christianity, and I'm a Christian, but the practice of Christianity in this culture was used as a way to, as, as, as Samantha was talking about, othering and completely disre disregarded the spiritual practices of the native people in these communities and, and similar to the story of when our enslavers, you know, wanted to strip us away from our practice of our own spiritual spirituality and then replace it with something that would be more in alignment with their thinking and their practice. And that's really, when you think about it, that's a really dehumanizing thing. And, and, and it's nothing, there's nothing in the sacred text for, for us, for me as a Christian, that that would would direct you to do that like like somehow you know you, we think of god as almighty and all powerful but god somehow would need humans to enact a diabolical plot to disconnect another group of humans from their spirituality or their understanding of the creator or the divine that makes the god of, of christianity of the way they practice is to be a very insecure God, right? If I'm almighty, I'm really not worried about like what anybody else is really doing, right? Because I, I, I'm almighty, right? It's, <laughs> right? I mean, there's nothing. To, yeah, and that's what, we, that's, that's what we say in our rhetoric, right? And that's what we say mm -hmm. in our practice, right? So I, I don't want us to miss this point about the, the importance of, of people being able to self-identify and self-define themselves at every level of their being, not only in the natural element about you know appearance but also in our interaction with the spiritual with the divine and to try to strip that from people because they're they're not like you it's just really very very it's diabolical yeah and, and when you talk about it that way um it lends to the bigger point of the story it's that the people that went through these things you know they lost themselves at certain ages they were there as young as i want to say one, two, three, so they knew nothing else, or they were teenagers. 
And, you know, at that point you had lived what all 14, 15, 16 years of your life living, you know, believing that this was the one way of living life. And then it was stripped away from you. You were, uh, you were beat with rulers or whatever, or what have you. Um, there were some residential schools that had, you know, just these cement cellar type things where kids were put in basic like solitary confinement for speaking their language. And there are documentaries and stories, uh, all over that I've seen of elders in the 90s, in the early 2000s, talking about their memories of, of these schools. And you can see the sorrow in their face. You can see that something was taken from them, whether it be their innocence, their personhood, right? That was, a lot was taken in, in, those, in those years. And my own grandmother, great-grandmother, was in one of those schools. And it was one of those things where it was never talked about in the family. I didn't know that she was in one of those until a couple of years ago, talking to my great aunt, one of her daughters. And it's reminiscent of what happens in a lot of Native families. The elders don't talk about it, but then what comes out of it when people don't talk, when we're not addressing the mental health issues, when people don't address however they see it, whether it's depression, whether it's anger, utter and complete sadness, I believe that is something that just gets passed down and it's what you know. And I say all that because when I look at my 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 grandparent or my great my great aunts and my great uncles, there tends to be a much more heavy handed stoicism almost that kinda of, kinda of derives from that. You know, we don't talk about this, but we're gonna hold our, you know, heads up high kind of thing. And that just affects people. The same person who was 16 in one of these schools and then disregarded whenever, whatever age they got, you know, sent back into, into society now that they were saved. It's very likely that they had hard times. My own father, I don't, I'm not ashamed to say was an alcoholic, but it's because of the way that he found out that he was adopted when he was 18. He didn't know he was Seneca until he was 18. He knew he was adopted before he knew he was, I'm sorry, he was Cayuga, um, but he knew he was adopted before he was Cayuga and that affected him. You could see the kind of trajectory that he went on with his life because of that instance, not knowing his culture, not knowing who he was. On a large scale, talking about these residential schools, just a whole society basically thrown out and told, you, you're not who you thought you were, you're who we said you are. And then instances, and that's why there's, you know, high prevalence, I believe, high prevalence of alcoholism, uh, drug abuse, things of that nature. And it just perpetuates with every, every given uh, generation that comes up. And so when I think of generational trauma, that's what I think of, is that we haven't fully healed. Because, again, my great-grandmother was in one of those schools. She raised a son who got together with my grandmother, who raised my mother. Yeah. Here I am. And that's all just, it's tragic. In addition to that, we're learning that children were actually killed in those spaces, right? I mean, yes. there's this, and so you talk, and there's, you know, they found skeletal remains underneath these sites of children. I mean, lots of them, you know? And so Hundreds. how does a community handle that truth? I don't know how, honestly. I don't know how a community handles that truth. Uh, I know that for me, it makes me angry because, as I've mentioned, my community is very small. At present, there are roughly 8,000 registered Senecas. You we're talking about hundreds of children that were lost in these at these schools. Think about how much larger 
our communities could have been. Technically, I have a lot of cousins. Technically, I have a lot of, you know, aunts and uncles and just all kinds of family I've never met before. People can relate to that, but I don't know them um, because just all of the fracturing that happens through these generational traumas. My mother moved to Buffalo because she didn't want to be around certain things that were going around on the reservation. Um, and again, I believe it's all connected to that generational trauma and what people go through or uh, worse, don't go through. Accountability is, it, it kind of comes to mind here, right? So, you know, we have a lot of conversations in the African-American community about reparations, and I'm a strong supporter of that. And I always use this analogy of, you know, if I came to your to your home and slapped you upside the head on Monday, slapped you upside the head on Tuesday and stole from you. And then, and then I come to your house on Wednesday and say, hey, my bad, I'm sorry. You got to make things right. You can't just say you're sorry. You have to give account to, to what you've taken from me on those other days when you were you were harming me. You can't just, we can't start the relationship from my apology. So how do we push forward a sense of, well, there's got to be some accountability for these atrocities that were uh, inflicted upon uh, our ancestors and in some ways through systemic and institutional racism and there's still this kind of this infliction of trauma of hurt of harm of othering how do we get to a point where we we hold people accountable so that we can move forward it's a hard one at least for the people who could make it right right they tend to believe, well, noses, it's not my turn. It, I'm not the one who needs to do this. I didn't do anything. Why, why do we have to, you know, make things right? Oh, Lord, that one. Um, um, and then it, it, the way you bring it up with accountability, it's kind of like the current news of what's going on with the nation and the casino revenues and uh, what's going on with the New York State. So for a little bit of context, back in 2002, there was an original gaming compact that was written. Uh, it was a contract between the New York State uh, under Pataki, I believe, and with the Seneca Nation that granted exclusivity rights of uh, casino gaming in Western New York, I believe, west of Geneva. So what that meant was that we had exclusive. We were the only ones who were allowed to operate casinos in this area back in 2002 when it was obviously not a very popular thing. My guess is people didn't think it would, you know, take off here. And then all these years later, the Senecas as a corporation, the Seneca Gaming Corporation, made millions upon millions of dollars. It was in the contract that the municipalities that hosted these casinos, Buffalo, Niagara Falls, and uh, Salamanca would uh, get so much percentage um, of these monies. Everything went to Albany. Albany then filtered it down to the municipalities. I believe it was 2017 or 2018. The contract was up. It was re renegotiated and rewritten. However, it wasn't explicitly stipulated in a contract that the payments to the state needed to continue. So the way I understand it, the way that it was rewritten was exclusivity was maintained for the Seneca Nation. However, it was not explicit that payments needed to continue. We are all entitled to sexual health, just as much as physical and mental health. We want to make it easier for folks to find resources. However they engage with us, there's no wrong door. So it's important that people are able to get access to care that is affirming. Talking about what their sex life is, about their concerns, and to make sure they're healthy. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your sexual health matters. Visit doitforyoumc.org. To New York State 
to the municipalities. That has been fought. Governor Cuomo at the time was the one who said, no, clearly that is not, in my mind, is not what we meant. That's not what we meant. Okay, so that, so there ensues another, I believe it was five years, so maybe it was 2016 that this happened, another five years of back and forth litigation uh, in the courts. It went through all kinds of court systems, eventually through mediation, through the courts, it was found that the nation should continue to pay the money. Now, that money was always held in escrow. So that money was there. The nation but who, who's, it. who's courts determined that they should make that the payment should be made? Oh, it was Court of Appeals, New York State. I so it was a state which... court, but not a Seneca court. Correct. Because you so you have because you have your own court system, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I just wanted to make that clear. Mm-hmm. You know, so the court said, okay, oh, so right, right. all this money, right? Right. And and yeah, it's not like we were, the nation was spending it and all of the citizens were getting, you know, X amount of checks and dollars and all of that. The money was sitting there and accruing interest in a separate account. So the money was always there. So fast forward, all of these things have happened. And now the nation has taken it to the Biden administration. They've taken it to the Department of the Interior. Um, Deb Holland, who is also native, uh, she is... Um, I forgot what nation she is, but out of New Mexico, that area. And, and, and she's the first secretary of interior from the native community, right? Yes. And she was, she, okay. First, okay. yep. Yeah. Her, her and one other were also first Native American congresswoman. Just put that out there in right, her lifetime. Right, right. Um, right. So there are all these, all these avenues that the nation is trying to pursue to say, no, 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 this isn't what was in the contract. And then it was last week that the governor had the nation's bank accounts with KeyBank frozen uh, so that there was no ability to get money out. And now this isn't like... Was it frozen in the midst of the negotiations or was there like, so, hey, listen, you know, we got to try to get this thing resolved. I'm going to have to freeze your accounts. Do we get some, get you back to the table? Or was it just like, hey, you know, wait, our accounts are frozen? So I want to preface this with, I do not know the ins and outs, as in I do not work sure, for the sure. government at the Understand. Seneca Nation, all right, that. Right, right, right. But from my understanding, the way we talked about it, and again, this happened so recently, we talked about it uh, at, at, after services for my grandmother, and the way I saw it was the nation's accounts were frozen, and because there was no end date, we didn't know when that was. There were people who worked for Seneca Gaming, who didn't know if their paychecks would be coming because the accounts were frozen. And that means natives and non-natives. So a lot of people in Western New York, because it's a major employer in Western New York. And um, not everybody that works there is from the native community. That's a very important point. point. Correct. But then even so, the nation was saying that if, with no end in sight, how will they pay to distribute medications? I myself, you know, I have, uh, I work for 1199 now and great benefits. I love, I love the union, but if I didn't have them, I would be dependent on the nation for my medications, for any of those kinds of services. They paid for my school and with no end in sight, how would they pay for these things? How would I get, how would I get my medications? My grandmother, before she passed, was living in nation elder housing, which meant that what would, what services could they provide her? Who would be there to, you know, help her or any of the elders that live within these housing systems if someone fell, but then people weren't getting paid to be there, that kind of thing, right? So it was a complete disruption, disruption, not just to 
the corporation and people's paychecks, but just people's lives. And for me, me personally, this is the part where I got really angry at this. I saw the, the news article about the bank accounts being frozen. I get that there is a strong arm. It was a strong arm tactic by the governor of New York, Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, to say, you need to pay up. Uh, the courts all said, we've been fighting this for years. You owe us the money. She said, okay, now you're just going to pass. You're not gonna. You're not gonna have any access to anything. It's not just access to payroll again. Remember, access to life. And I felt that that was extremely in poor taste. But it was just, um, you know, an extremely nasty way to go about doing these things, doing business, and then to turn around and find out there's there's all the state money that's going to a Bills stadium. Now I like the Bills more than uh, just about as much as everyone else. Stefan Diggs getting uh, signed, cool. I love it. I'm excited, but. The thought of all of this money getting, you know, and then she says basically outright in the Buffalo News, well, this is Western New York money, so we're just going to make sure that it goes to, <sighs> mind you, the work that I do, the governor has a lot to do with, you know, my union and the people that work within the union, all of that. So you're telling me that you took from my people who provide for our people and you're not even giving it to safe staffing. You're not even giving it to nursing homes that need it. You're giving it to the bills. It was a slap in the face as a citizen of the nation and just someone who cares about people who aren't, you know, native. And the leadership there uh, was very clear about that. They were extremely unhappy with the tactics, but then also how this money was going to be spent and this is very problematic but i think but i think it, it's related to just that our original conversation that we we're having sam about othering about thinking people that they're less than who you who they are and that you have the you know you can impinge upon a person's existence their land their religion their hairstyle their whatever they they deem to do that you, in your position of authority, right, have the right to go and just impinge that into, and to just take, because they just, you know, I mean, you could see what you, because, because, and, and, and I mean, there's a lot of arguments to be made here, right? I mean, there was a deal that was struck. You're in the middle of negotiations, just because you know uh, a non-native court makes a a, a ruling. That does not necessarily bind the Seneca Nation to to adhere to those things. I mean, it, it, you just have to continue to negotiate and come up with something that's going to be fair and equitable for everyone. And quite frankly, because we started this conversation, you know, around reparation and stuff like that, I would argue that the, the Seneca Nation doesn't owe New York State anything ever. Right, but you're not good, you're not going <laughs> to get Kathy Hochul or anybody in leadership right. uh, in our life on the moral so, side. Oh, you're right. On your right, yeah. I'm, I'm, it, it's my turn. I'll be the one that makes sure that this gets, yeah. this gets done. You know, I mean, you're not going to get that. It's, and that's why it's so important to have, to have this truth telling, to, to really tell people the story. You know what I mean? The truth. Because those actions of freezing, you know, this very hostile freezing of accounts, doing all this other stuff, and then transferring it, not into a, something that, you know, like you said, like, Pay in healthcare workers or, or schools or or something like that to, to help the poor, but to to finance a recreational entertainment facility out of those dollars, it just doesn't feel right. It's not 
I don't think it's it's helping us to get to the point where we want to bring a more equitable society, address these issues of health disparities, address these things about trauma that's causing these mental health issues and all this other stuff. It's just another, it seems like just another way to inflict. It's just adding another chapter to that story of, it's almost kind of sending a message to say, well, yeah, you know, you guys were successful with this casinos, but just recognize this. We still have the power here. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at it, it's just that, you know, there is this, it's the freezing of the accounts one. That's the one big thing. The, again, the money that is owed to New York state that would have been filtered down to the municipalities was in a separate account. The money exists. It's in a pot, right? They didn't have to freeze the other accounts. The money was there. We were good for it. They froze, they froze accounts again, that affected people's livelihoods and people wondering if they were going to get paid next week, that kind of thing. So that was a really strong arm tactic that said, well, we don't care about your people. It's also um, obvious that they don't care about the fact that this was a government to government kind of relationship. You can't, you know, I don't feel like you should be able to just do that to another government. What you can do legally, I'm not sure. Um, but remember, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right. Uh, so the fact that the New York state felt like they could do this and to affect a large portion of, uh, for me, a significant portion of people, it was that, that's a, that's a dehumanizing tactic right there. And again, something that New York state said, well, we're sorry, we're going to treat you as if you're, you know, you, you make hats or you're a manufacturing company and we'll, we'll freeze your accounts that way. And that's how we get our money. No, my government helps people. I have been a benefactor of many benefits uh, of the Seneca Nation government. So all of that to say is, yeah, uh, you know, the nation, I believe, did what it needed to do. Again, I don't know the ins and outs of everything that happened, but as far as I can tell, had it been the other way around, had New York State lost in the courts and had New York State, you know, not come up with what they needed in order to get this money, they would have exhausted every appeals and every last little thing that they could do um, before, you know, giving up and saying, I guess we lost. They would have exhausted every last thing and every last dollar they had to contribute to that effort. Um, the nation was still waiting on the Department of the Interior to hear what they could do. So we hadn't exhausted everything just yet. But when you look at things from a historical standpoint, and we, we have to wrap this up, it shouldn't be about winning and losing. When we think about governments, institutions, and you think about historical trauma, institutional racism, structural racism, generational trauma, the benefit that the country and American businesses, international businesses, have benefited from just the inception of, of how this republic was. You know, you steal it and then you take others to work it. Yeah, you're going to be pretty successful, I think. I mean, that's a pretty good start. There's no bootstraps. And this is a reality, and that's not to take away from any of the noble actions of individuals and their that work the land and all that. I get it. But it's got to impact how we interact now, right? That there's got to be a level of humility that New York State comes to the table with the Seneca Nation. It's so what if the Seneca Nation has made a lot of money off of gaming and whatever. No matter what you make out of that, it'll never be able to to be a fair and equitable exchange for what was done to Native people. The genocide that was, you know, a result of this experiment, American experiment. And then the child abuse. Under every definition of child abuse, 
that's what these schools were. They're not. They weren't schools. They were centers. There were centers for child abuse that not only resulted in people being stripped of their of their cultural identities, but also there was a lot of sexual and improprieties, violence against children in these in these institutions, and and this is real stuff. So when you have people that that's part of their history, right? When you come to the table with them about an issue now, you have to come with some humility and and with a with a heart to try to figure out how do we resolve this conflict in such a way where where each party co- goes away from the table whole in some ways, right? And but to be heavy-handed and to just to to, to almost think that you have that right it just speaks of just the continual cycle of colonialism and just all the darkness of our story that we, we're working so hard to be, you know, we try so hard to be the best citizens that we can. We really do. When you look at the history of, of African people in America, of indigenous people in America, and the fact that we're not just completely rebellious and recalcitrant at every level, right, based on our history, the fact that we even try to be good citizens, to be contributors, and we do a great job of contributing to the story of this country. And yet we still, and even when you achieve some success, there's still that that prospect of abuse, of injustice. And, you know, it's it's just disheartening. It's really disheartening, but it also fuels, you know, those kinds of things, those stories, those acts of injustice. After you get over your anger, right? It, it, you, you, but then that just fuels you to say, yeah, that's why I'm fighting. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm an activist. That's why I'm a whatever a community organizer, whatever you know, the title that you want to do. That's why we don't, you know, you can be a good citizen without assimilating, right? And so, you know, uh, uh, it, but you can still hold to your identity and you can still advocate for your, your people. So uh, we thank you so much uh, for this conversation. You want to just give us a closing and then uh, and then I'll, we'll, I'll wrap this up. But thank you for sharing. I thank you for your friendship. You know, um, one of the benefits that I that I have from from hosting this podcast is most of the people that you'll hear on this on this on our podcast are not only outstanding people in the work that they do, but they're my friends. And it's good to know that, you know, they're people of this kind of character that are in my circle. And I appreciate you so much, Sam, for what you do. And I am an activist, I'm an organizer, I'm all of that, but I consider myself a storyteller. And I think that's important because like you were mentioning was, you know, the truths. If we don't tell our truths and if we don't talk about our experiences, then we are doomed to rely on what's fed to us. Um, I've never really been uh, too keen on the idea of just being told what to do. It, it explains a lot, actually. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I like to ask why. And I like to ask, you know, well, who said that this has to be the way that it has to be? And the way I approach life is trying to be a storyteller, whether it's organizing, going through a leadership uh, development thing with a, with a community leader and making sure that they know how to tell their own stories or even going on this podcast. Who knows, maybe one day I'll write a book and talk about my experience. But it's all important because nobody knows 
what it's like to be a Native person in an urban community. You've mentioned the word other so much uh, in this podcast and all these different kinds of things, but it's a different perspective. And I'm a big fan of making sure that we know everything outside of the status quo. Uh, making sure that we know that there are all kinds of things that we need to be, you know, watching out for, especially in the work that, you know, the three of us do um, in, in health equity, because sometimes we miss things ourselves. And so it's that story piece as it relates to our experiences and within our cultures, in our communities that I think is really important. So happy to come on another time if you, uh, if, if you invite me. So oh, <laughs> I'll, I will always, leave it with that. Always. Great. All right. Thank you. So this has been the Igniting Hope podcast uh, with your host, Pastor George Nicholas. And just reminding you, to, if you have any questions about what the work we're doing, go to buffalohealthequity.org, buffalohealthequity.org. And so for Samantha Nephew and Kim Sue Harambe, uh, bid you good day and just stay encouraged and be intentional about your love for others. You know, don't just don't talk about loving humanity. Uh, take some deliberate, intentional actions in your daily walk uh, to express your love for someone today. Thank you so much. Well, it's been Ignite and Hope Radio. Thank you for tuning in for your weekly dose of hope. And we ask you listeners to please share, like, subscribe, whether it be on Spotify, Apple, whatever your podcast listening platform is. Share it with a friend and tell us what you think. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and be healthy. This time of year, you double down on cheer. So does Dunkin'. That's why they have twice the signature lattes with minty peppermint mocha and creamy toasted white chocolate, both handcrafted with rich espresso. Grab one today. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Choose from a variety of accessories, like our cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited time offer ends November 28th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com.